Um, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews 12 in just a moment uh, as we continue in our series, Who We Are. Uh, but I'd love to, to start in this way. I had a couple of conversations uh, with people this week, and Advent always brings this to mind. Um, we sing about it every week. We think about it every week. Incarnate deity, veiled in flesh. What does that mean? Well, that means that God took on flesh, that Jesus took on flesh. That happened in a very particular way. It happened through a birth. And again, I had this conversation a couple of times this week with people, and I, I kind of got to a place where maybe more so than I ever have been, I just got stuck on this thought and was mystified. Childbirth is the wildest thing in the world. This is nuts. And I know a lot of you ladies are like, you should see it from our side, right? And I get that. I don't get that, but I want to get that. You know what I mean. But don't hook me up to one of those machines where they make the dudes feel like they're in childbirth and it's, it's hysterical. You should watch that if you get some time. Um, childbirth is the wildest thing. Because when it concludes, one is holding this baby that we affectionately typically call a bundle of joy, joy right? And, and really, in, in so many ways, we don't have a, another way perhaps to even identify or connect or describe. What a beautiful picture of joy this perfect little innocent child is. But the process to get there is not easy, so I've heard. Months and months of kind of what we do in this season and we step back into. It's months of waiting. It's an advent of something that is coming and yet we're longing and we're waiting and we're desiring and it's not yet here. And I've, like, Clover was 10 days late and it fits her personality because that's <laughs> who she is as a human too. But that there was an intense period for our family I'm trying to jump into this, but it's all you. Of waiting, right? Of waiting and waiting. And our, our first daughter, Millie, when she was born, uh, it was relatively traumatic, and it was, um, you know, emergency C-section, and so I didn't really get to be there for that one. Um, but with Clover, I got to be there, and I saw and felt the wildest and strangest things. I definitely learned why I was not capable or able to, to ever pursue any sort of medical career. Um, not a big blood guy. And I thought this week so much about the experience of Clover being born and the moments of pain. And yet this moment that culminates with euphoric and in a human way, a transcendent experience of joy. But there was blood, there was pain, and the process was arduous. At this time of year, we think about Luke chapter 2, specifically verse 10, this phrase that there is this news for Mary, and not just Mary, but for the world, for you and me. It's what? It's good news of great joy. I thought back to Clover's birth and the moments of pain that led up to it, and I envisioned myself thinking of, what if I told Mia, hey, I just want to tell you, this, this, there's good news of great joy that's coming. Right? Yeah, not a great idea. 
the process of you and I getting to experience joy was a costly one and a painful one. Christ takes on flesh so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Just what we sang earlier. Joy does not come without pain. But it's in joy, and specifically the Lord, his presence. That's where we find true, real, lasting, what Drew was talking about, this abiding, deep, substantive joy. And we have that joy in Jesus to offer to the world. This morning, we're going to continue in our series in who we are. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking very specifically at three things. Who we are as an identity in relationship to God, in relationship to one another, and in relationship to the world. We use 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically verses 9 and 10, as a framework to really guide us to an understanding that who we are in relationship to God is this. We are God's possession. That's what 1 Peter says, that as far as how we relate to one another, those who are in the body of Christ, we are God's people. We were once not a people, but now God has made us a people. And then specifically, in relationship to the world, we are those who proclaim light out of darkness, the place from which we've been delivered. We are proclaimers of the very glory of God. So we've used this Advent series two weeks ago in hope. Last week has been Stevenson preached to us in peace and today in joy to say that who we are in relationship to the world are people who are proclaimers of the glory of God. This means we proclaim God's hope in Jesus to the world. We proclaim God's peace in Jesus to the world. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like for us not only to understand joy for ourselves, but also to be those who proclaim joy quite specifically, quite literally, to the world. We are going to talk about what it looks like to offer joy to the world. As we dive into the text here in a moment, three things that I hope you'll see with me this morning. Number one, Joy, joy is not the absence of pain. Joy is not the absence of pain. Much like that childbirth scenario that we talked about. There's this incredible, amazing, untold, indescribable, euphoric joy. And yet it is not without pain. Second, Our ultimate joy is found in the very presence of God. We're going to look into one of the Psalms of David to see that that it's the presence of God. That is the place, that is the source from which we experience and derive our joy. Third and finally, we will see that joy now is not just this ethereal thought or this feeling that is out beyond us. Instead, it is very practically something in which we can have perspective, and it's a posture, it's a way of life in which we can walk. Joy is our perspective, and it's our posture. We're going to see this through a number of scriptures today. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Number one, joy is not the absence of pain. Joy is not the absence of pain. Even as there is this proclamation of joy that is to come, good news of great joy, quite often, as Drew mentioned, we we confuse, we conflate, and we tend to intertwine this idea of happiness and joy. And we conflate the two in an unhealthy way. Happiness is, by and large, a product of feeling or even satisfaction, a set of circumstances in which we find ourselves happy, okay, satisfied. But joy is different. Joy is radically different. It is much more concrete. It is much more set. It is much more secure. Not on circumstances that color the present, but actually the reality of what has happened past, present, and what is yet to come in the future. Our Savior knew this. Look at Hebrews 12.2 and you see this. There is pain. And the author of Hebrews very simple description of what Jesus walked through. He endures the cross. Untold, unmeasurable, inexplicable, indescribable moments of human pain. But it's not just physical. Because he also endured shame. There are those who rejected him, who mocked him, who scoffed at him. Who said, if you really are the Son of God, get off the cross. Save yourself. He was derobed. His clothes were quite literally taken and then gambled for. Jesus felt physical and emotional pain. Yet, he endured. Why? Look at what the text says. For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I don't see a whole lot of joy. I don't see a whole lot of joy. So, What the author of Hebrews is saying to us, what the Spirit is walking us toward, must be something much deeper, perhaps, than what we see with physical eyes. It's a spiritual thing. It's because of joy, and the joy that Jesus saw in his obedience to the Father and his love for us. What we just sang about God and sinners being reconciled, it was the joy of bringing us into restored relationship with the Father that he does this. That joy is more than the pain. He saw the plan and the promise of his father, and he endured because of that joy that was set before him. And in fact, if you've been doing this thing where you've been walking with Jesus any amount of time, you've come to the starting realization that pain is part of the plan. Pain is part of the plan. 
the preceding passage, the, 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 the things that are detailed before these two verses that we just read together are this great cloud of witnesses. These people who testify to the goodness and the love and the mercy and the power and the forgiveness and the grace of God. People that knew God and heard from God and walked with God and did incredible things for God. But you know probably what the common thread apart from that is that characterizes their life is? It's pain. Pain. Listen to these people. Noah, enduring the ridicule of every single person. That knew him. Abraham walking a road thinking he'll sacrifice his one and only son. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, imprisoned, and then being falsely accused. Moses enduring plaints, distrust, even coups, and utter consistent disobedience from everyone he walked with. David spends much of his life running from someone who's trying to kill him. Ruth loses everyone except her mother-in-law. Paul faces shipwreck, persecution, flogging, prison, dangers that we don't know. And there are others. There are others that you're thinking of right now. There's Job, James, there's John the Baptist. And then there's Mary, who watches her son be brutally executed. All of these are witnesses to the glory of God, to the joy of salvation. And yet, they experience pain. Jesus knows the plan. Remember Mark chapter 8, and this is so beautiful. If you read Mark's gospel in chapter 8, you encounter this moment where Jesus, and the, the phrase, it starts so casually, he's walking. The text says he's walking with people to Caesarea Philippi. He's walking with his disciples. And the text presents it almost as if he just casually asked this question. Who do people say that I am? And his disciples respond. And they say, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say other prophets. And then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? We know the boldness of Peter and who he is throughout the biblical text. And so it's probably likely that he doesn't say this under his breath. He says, you are the Christ. He recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And then there's a shift. And what I would definitely call one of the minor keys in which Peter is standing with the disciples and he's listening to Jesus teach. That he must suffer. Specifically that the Son of Man must suffer. That he must be betrayed. That he must be killed. And raised on the third day. And Peter with his boldness says. Hold on. This is not the plan. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. 
Now, look, I struggle with being frustrated at myself about sin and doubt and all kinds of different stuff, but I got that one going for me. Never heard the Lord say to me, get behind me, Satan. He's serious. Why? Because he says, you're thinking in the way of man. You're not thinking the thoughts of God. The thoughts of God are different. That means that joy doesn't feel like happiness. That means, in fact, that for us to even really understand or grasp what joy is, we're going to have to experience pain. But Peter is so much like you and I because you know what he thinks? There's got to be another way. Why is there not another way? Why isn't there something else, a different way to go here? Every Christmas I read this little, little book called On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And one of the phrases that always sticks out to me is he too kind of tries to answer the question that humans have. Why couldn't there be another way? Why does the Son of God have to come and die? He phrases it in this way. This is what he says. He says, some may then ask, why did he, speaking of Jesus, not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation and use some nobler instruments such as moon or stars or fire or air instead of mere man? Why take on this? Why take on flesh? Why take on a body? And he says this, the answer is this, the Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and teach suffering men. Jesus is the son of suffering. He experienced pain. He's the one who came to die. Often we see Jesus in this moment as our Savior. This is his job. No, this was his joy. Do you understand that? This was his joy to glorify God and to save you and I from the death that we deserve. He took on pain. able, as the author of Hebrews will say, to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, yet having not sinned. So joy is not the absence of pain. Well, then what is joy? Look into Psalm 16 and we'll see this. Our ultimate joy is the presence of of God. Our ultimate joy is the presence of God. I think it's really, really helpful for us to read these short uh, amount of verses together. Let's read together Psalm 16. Uh, I didn't mean that like auditorily. You read it, just follow along. Let's look at all of these verses because there's something that's incredible and that parallels this Hebrews passage so well. This is Psalm 16. It says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. 
you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The couple of incredible things that this passage details and that David is saying that the Spirit is ultimately saying through him to communicate to you and I about what real joy looks like. What it looks like to take hold of that which is good and see it for what it truly is and experience life that is abundant and more than we ever imagined or thought. He starts in this way in verse 2 by saying this. to He says, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. This is how Jesus views his relationship with the Father. He loves him fully, wholly, completely, obediently. And he says, this is, this is my good. To honor you, to glorify you. So much so, that as Hebrew says, the author and perfecter of our faith has set his eyes forward for the joy of glorifying God and reconciling us to him, we can see in verse 8 this same language. David says, I've set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Finally, look down into verse 11 and you see this. He describes three things. About what it is to know and to experience God. And at the very center is joy. And it's not just some joy or partial joy or, or a little bit of joy or even 90% of the joy. But it's actually the fullness of joy. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. How does Jesus endure these moments of untold pain? Because understand and be very clear on this. The Son of God took on flesh like ours. Flesh that, that hurts, that aches, that bleeds. He's the God who weeps for us and he's the God who bleeds for us. Jesus has taken on flesh. How does he endure for the joy that is set before him? The joy that is set before him. So where do I find joy amidst the pain? Well, the scripture says that the real joy I find is in the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord. This is why you see people who've walked through life and in, in the end, they're, they're, they're in the latter part of their days and they live with joy and contentment and peace that those of us, that some of us that are experiencing maybe perhaps even some of the most anxious times or ages or stages of life, like we can't imagine what it would be like to, to, to live that way in that level of contentment. And it's not just because all the kids have moved out. 
These people who have walked with God throughout the period of our life, they understand that the joy that they find, the, mo- the deepest moments of joy are the times of prayer, the times of solitude, the times of reading God's word, the times of being with God. Those are not interruptions to the main point of life. Those are the main point of life. And everything else is necessity. It's not the other way around. Our ultimate joy, what you and I were designed for, what we've been reconciled to, is Eden restored. It's new heavens, it's new earth, it's walking with God as He intended. Not for Him to just be near us or close to us, but for us to be in His very presence. Our ultimate joy is in the presence of God, finally. Joy is our perspective and our posture. Joy, now, if we understand it, is not just something that's out and beyond. It's actually within, and it's here, and it's now. And joy is how I'm meant to think and how I'm meant to walk and live. Here's the thing about joy, that that word joy, and it's the main word for joy that you're going to find throughout the New Testament in myriad places, that word for joy really has, has this meaning. It means a recognition of grace. It means grace realized. That's what it means. For the Christian, joy is really a disposition of recognition. And here's what I mean by that. We carry ourselves, we live in, we are clothed with, this is Paul in Colossians 3, put on the new self. We live in such a way that it reveals that we recognize who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Joy is not everything feels good right now and I'm pumped about it. Joy is, I have a Savior who loves me and died for me and has forgiven me, so I will walk through the fire. I will endure the pain. I will recognize that the promise of God, that His grace is greater not only than my sins, but my feelings, than what I can see in front of me. No, I recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, this is going to alter my perspective and my posture. Jesus came to die, to seek and to save the lost, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we realize that and see that and to see that you're a part of the lost that has been saved, that you were a part of of the many that he's ransomed. When you know that and when you see that, it brings unspeakable joy. Why? Because you recognize the grace of God. So that means this, that that our joy is bound to the future, not our feelings. My joy is tied to the or tied to rather the finished work of Jesus, not any present challenge that sits in front of me. My joy is in the God who, though now I see dimly, soon you and I will see face to face. 
faith will become sight, and this will happen. Your joy will actually be full, completely full. Look at James chapter 1 and verse 2, and you're going to see the same phrase that's used. He just launches right in. James writes this book, and it's, it's the 12 tribes of people that are dispersed, and this is just what he says to all of them from the very beginning. A group of people that are in persecution, that are being hurt physically, that they're, they're so societal pressures on, all these kind of things. This is what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right off the jump, he says this. Count it all all joy. Why, why do you count it joy? Because you recognize the grace of God has triumphed over every circumstantial moment. Every single moment. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and look at how Paul details his life. You're likely familiar with this. He says, uh, after he tells everybody how to think, he says, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The source of his strength, his joy, the means through which he endures is God himself. He has a new perspective. He has a new posture, a new way to live. You're people of joy. That's who we are as Christians. I want to tell you a story about people that are a part of our church. A few weeks ago, got a got a phone call and got, got a text and got some recognition that um, this couple was walking through a very challenging moment. The wife had been diagnosed with cancer. As a pastor, I make phone calls to people that are walking through pain and sickness and heartache and all that kind of stuff a lot. And I got to tell you, it's not fun to pick up the phone and call someone expecting to hear the pain, the hurt the sadness, the confusion, and to walk with them and to help them understand that in this moment of discomfort, God deeply loves them, to help communicate that truth. I want to tell you about how this couple ministered to me because I called them on the phone, me and I, I did together, and, and we were just astounded at their confidence at their confidence in what God was doing. That he was not caught by surprise. That in fact, he was going to use this for their good. And they continued to use this language, this language that whatever God's doing through this, he's going to use it for our good. And we want to be faithful to him. And we want to trust in him. No matter what comes. These are people who know the joy of the Lord. Who have walked through the fire. Who have been through pain. And they know that what is happening now and whatever happiness they have, 
does not compare with the joy and the life and the love that they found in Jesus Christ. What a blessing. Not just to, to, to me, but to all of us. These are the people that are walking with us as brothers and sisters in this church. What a blessing. This is a season where everybody wants to feel good. I'm not immune to this. I like to feel good, all right? I want to be happy. I want to laugh. I want to be joyful at Christmas, but it means so much more. It means coming to a deep recognition that good news of great joy doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy. It means that everything is going to be good. Everything's going to be good. As our worship team comes and we prepare to conclude, I want to share this with you. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That it's not just us, that the whole world is groaning for restoration. To be restored. But Paul says, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, he says this very specifically. For I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with future glory. So that leads me to this. What do, what do we do with this as people of joy? Well, this is what we do. We offer our stories of pain and how the joy of Christ is more. What you've done for me, what you've done for me, the stories that you've shared, how you've walked in Jesus and you've found him more richer, more beautiful, more perfect, more desirable. Everything more than the pain, more than the moments that you're walking through and seasons of unhappiness. Offer your stories of pain to the world. And how the joy of Christ is more. Second, declare where your ultimate joy is found. There are relationships that you and I are living in day by day. There are people that are going to come to your house in this season. And they're going to stay longer than you want them to. And it's going to get very griswold very quickly. And we all know how that goes. But you got the opportunity to declare that joy is found in Jesus Christ. Finally. Let's pray that together, and I don't just mean this for ourselves, I mean pray it for our brothers and sisters around us, that, that God would transform our perspective, that we would be people of joy, that we would count it all joy because we know the story. That there is good news of great joy that has come to us. That Jesus came to die so that you and I could be restored and experience fullness of joy in the presence of God. We were separated. It was broken. We were marred by sin. But thanks be to God that Christ has come for us. Our life will not be without pain. But because of what Jesus has done, we know that our lives will not be without joy. Amen? If you will, bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, We close a time of worship, Father, in which we long to sing to you and to confess that your son Jesus has come for us, that you and your infinite wisdom have reconciled us to yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, this morning as people who are yours indwelled by your spirit, Will you remind us of the wonder 
of the hope of future glory. The present reality that we are at peace with you. Father, and of the joy that we have. The recognition of who you are and what you've done for us. So that we might be reconciled to you. We ask these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.